Merry Christmas. How are we doing, church? Doing good? You got your Bibles? I hope you do. Go John chapter 1. What kind of world do we live in where on a Sunday morning, a 43-year-old pastor of a church feels like he needs to explain why he's got his shirt tucked in at church? It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. So maybe I'm just a grown man, want to wear grown man clothes sometimes, or maybe have a wedding right after the 1.30 service. You decide. All right, so everybody's freaked out this morning for over it. Okay, relax. Some of you are new here. You're like, well, you're not even dressed up. That's casual Friday where I work. Okay, come back next week. All right, so uh, hey, grab your Bibles. John chapter 1. We are in the fifth week of a six-week series called, And He Shall Be Called. It's rooted in the prophet Isaiah's uh, prophecy about the Messiah that we, we hear at Christmas a bunch, where he said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you back up a couple of chapters to Isaiah chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7 and says this. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the Bible helps us out and tells us what Emmanuel means. In parentheses it says, which means God with us. God with us. How in the world is the almighty God with us? 1995, I was a first-year student in seminary, and this theologian asked this very thought-provoking question that made its way throughout the country, literally from coast to coast, and the question was this, what if God was one of us? I don't know if you're around in 95, but the thesis went this way, yeah, 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 God is great, that's a fact, all right? And yeah, yeah, God is good, also a fact. And what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Nope, that's where it fell apart. Just a stranger on the bus, he doesn't have to be, just trying to make his way home. Actually, what he did was left his home on a rescue mission to come and meet us so that he doesn't have to be a stranger on a bus. He's not a slob. Her Christology is way off. He was the perfect righteousness of God. Sin here. If God had a name, what would it be? Jesus. Would you call it to his face? Mm-hmm, people did. It was not a big deal, okay? And so, Emmanuel is the answer to that. Is that the almighty God, maker of the heavens and the earth, he became one of us. That, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And I think John chapter 1 is the best explanation of what it looks like for God to become one of us. Now, what I love about the book of John is in Matthew and in Luke, they tell the what of Christmas, like what happened, who, who the people were, where they were going, what they were doing. And then John chapter 1 tells the why behind Christmas. And so Matthew and Luke, they're going to start in the little town of Bethlehem, and John's going to go way back before the little town of Bethlehem. So if you grab your Bibles, go to John chapter 1, pick it up in verse 1. It says this, in the beginning, sound familiar? John's going to take it all the way back like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. But here he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, this word that we translate word is from the Greek word logos or logos. Um, it was a common first century concept. Everybody understood what logos or logos was. It was divine self-expression or to them, it was the principle of reason. It was the thing behind the thing that made everything happen. It would be sort of like, not exactly, but it would be sort of like if I said to you um, in, in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was this force. 
people would be like, okay, I got it. I, I know what we're talking about. And so what John is doing, John is taking a thing that everybody knew about to, to explain a God that they did not know. So in the first century, when they heard logos, they, they knew. It, it's, it's the root word for the word logic for us. So in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So this logos, this, this principle of reason is with God and is God, co-equal and yet distinct. What John is doing here is he is describing um, two, two-thirds of the Trinity. He is describing God the Father and he's describing God the Son. And he wants us to know in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now, spoiler alert, this word is going to become flesh in verse 14 and we know him as Jesus. And so what John wants us to know is Jesus was not created, but Jesus is creator. And that from the, like Jesus didn't originate at Christmas, but God the Son is eternally existent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning. Verse 3, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus made it all. Jesus was not made. There are some religions that believe God the Father created God the Son, and then together they got after creating everything else. But John specifically wants us to know that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, Jesus, that he was there from before there was a beginning. He was in the beginning with God, verse 3, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is, the, this is the foundation on which we are going to get Christmas here in a little while. Here's the way John Calvin describes these verses. John Calvin says, In this introduction, he asserts the eternal divinity of Christ in order to inform us that he is the eternal God who was manifest in the flesh. The design is to show it to have been necessary that the restoration of mankind should be accomplished by the Son of God, since by his power all things were created, since he alone breathed into all the creatures life and energy so that they remain in their condition, and since in man himself he has given a remarkable display both of his power and of his grace, even subsequently to the fall of man has not ceased to show liberality and kindness towards his posterity. Make sense? Here's what he's saying. God had to, Jesus had to save us because Jesus is the one that made us. That's what all that meant, okay? By the way, that's my job to take things like John Calvin, put it in like Dylan terms so we can all, you know, eat lunch with a clear conscience. All right, so that's what he's saying. Because Jesus is the creator of life, when life got all busted up and broken, then not only is he the creator of all life and light, but he is also the fixer of those things. That's what Calvin was saying. It's what John 1, 1 through 5 is all about. Then he keeps going. There was a man sent from God. It's kind of a little aside. He's going to talk about John the Baptist for a second. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness, because that's what witnesses do, to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now back to Jesus, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is Christmas. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, this specifically means the first century Jewish people, that God had set apart, that God had been preparing, that God had sent prophets, that God had given the Torah, had given the law, had given the sacrificial system, had given a temple, and everything was pointing to the Messiah. And they were very, very, very religious people. 
And God Almighty is three feet away from them, and they missed out a relationship. They missed. They missed because they had their eyes closed or scales over their eyes, and what they were looking for was not an Almighty God that wanted a personal relationship with Him. What they were looking for is some kind of political figure to do for them what they wanted. But I also think it means us today. Because since all of us are created by him, that means we're all his people. We are all his, and yet he has come to us. That's what Emmanuel means. And there still are some of us who have not received him. Verse 12, the good news. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I get this question a bunch. How do, how do you surrender your life to Christ? I get this question often. You see, um, whenever we explain the gospel around here and want to give an, an invitation for you to follow after Jesus, the language that we use, there's lots of different ways you could say that. All right, The way I grew up was if you want to ask Jesus into your heart. And then I worked at this camp where the people were asking us to ask Jesus into our heart. And so I would use that same language. And I asked this 12-year-old kid one time in my cabin, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And he says, if I ask him into my heart, don't you think he'll stick out? I hope so. Okay, it's really good theology. All right, but that's not exactly the language we use here. Because the reason is because God's the initiator, we're not the initiator. So what we do here is say, are you ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And, I, and people say, how do you do that? What does that mean? How do you surrender your life to Christ? Well, John says... To believe is to receive, and to receive is to believe. And this word believe, in Greek it's pistuo, it means to trust. That's what it means. It means to trust. It doesn't mean that you believe that baby Jesus showed up and went to a cross. A lot of people believe that, even the demons. But that you believe in, that you, that you trust in, that you admit I need somebody to do for me what I cannot do for me. I've tried to fix me up my whole life. It's not working. And I believe that when Christ died on the cross, that counted for me. Not that I've got to get myself together to prove my righteousness or worthiness to Christ, but because he was righteous and he paid the full debt, then I can receive that. And so in this moment, I quit. I give up. I surrender. I confess. You're the Lord and I'm not the Lord. And so the way John says it is to believe is to receive, and to receive is to believe. And so then the question is, so what do you receive? He says, you receive the right to become a child of God. A child of God. No longer a slave of fear, but a child of God. And when that happens, everything changes. Everything changes. The moment you believe in, not just believe that, I'm talking about at that soul gut level. Even if you've got a whole bunch of questions and you're not sure how this happened and you still got a whole bunch of stuff to work out in your life, that's why Jesus died on the cross. And you know at the soul level, when he died on the cross, that counted for me, even though I don't deserve it. Congratulations, you're in. And that means you have the right, the right to become a child of God. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. <clears throat> An illustration is this. Anybody know who Kate Middleton is? All of you but me. Okay, so uh, if you've never heard of her, all right, it's probably because you're a grown man with a hobby, all right? Congratulations. But if not, Kate Middleton, she grew up just like a kind of a normal girl. Her parents worked for the airline industry, then they started this little business, and she was a bazillionaire. And in college, she met Prince William. 
And they started dating, and they, you know, people were really into that. I don't know why. They don't have a life, but they lived theirs, and then they got married a few years ago. And when they, the whole world watched on television, apparently. And so when they got married, everything about her life changed. Every, her life now is unrecognizable to what it was like 10 years ago when she was in high school or whatever, right? Everything changed. You know what, you know what Kate Middleton could not do 10 years ago? There's no way she could just be strolling around London and go, you know what, I think I'm going to go uh, to the Queen's Palace and walk up to the door and just knock on it and it opened up and she goes, uh, can I have tea with the Queen? I mean, I just felt like that's what I wanted to do. And in fact, uh, do you guys mind if I just like look around? I mean, the palace is awesome, right? It's big, it's cool. I would love to just look around. And in fact, is it cool with you guys if I just like get some popcorn and sit in, you know, take my shoes off and watch some Real Housewives? Do you guys mind if I do that? And in fact, I bet you'll have secret stuff here, you know? I mean, it's kind of old. I bet you have one of those things where you pull the book and it goes, and the door opens and I can walk around and like check out the dungeons. And Can I do that? What do you think they would say? No. One of, those, one of those guys with the fuzzy hats and the red coat, you know, the little human Q-tip would come in with their sword and ask her to prison. That's what would happen. Except a few years ago, because of the love of some man to her, they got married. Everything about her situation changed. Her title changed. Her name changed. And access to the royal family changed completely. And so the queen wasn't super stoked about just Kate Middleton, the daughter of the uh, airline stewardess. So she changed her name to Catherine, Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge. But it's still just Kate. But now, not because of who she is, but because of who she's with, she has access to everything in the royal palace. You see, that's what it's sort of like to have the right to become a child of God. My daddy used to say it this way, boy, it ain't what you know. That's a fact. It is who you know. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of experience where you've had access to something that you did not deserve, but because of the person that you're with, you get in places you can't get in? Um, every year, I get invited to do uh, the Bible study for the Jaguars the night before the game. So two weeks ago, uh, I did it, and it's, it's not my fault. I tried. All right, I did my best. <laughs> I prayed, and I, you know, I did many things. <laughs> I did assure them, though, boys will be first in heaven, okay? So we have that to look forward to. Boy, it's so bad. All right, so, but my one request is uh, I'll come and speak to the team. I, it's great. A bunch of them go to church here, so that's all cool. But I just say, as long as JP can go with me, because how cool is that, right? 11-year-old kid just hanging out with Alan Hearns and all, those, all these guys, right? And Prince Amakamura and Tyler Shatley, all these guys go to church here. And so here's the deal, though. They stay in a hotel downtown, and a bunch of the fans stay in that hotel the night before the game because they know all the players are there. And there's all of these people, Jaguar fans, at the bottom of these steps, uh, and there's some red ropes where it says, you know, you can't pass here. And a bunch of people kind of hang out there because they're trying to sort of catch a player in between meetings. Maybe they get something signed, et cetera. And so JP and I are just hanging out. And then the chaplain comes walking down the steps, and he takes me and JP, and he removes the red rope, and then we just walk right in there. And they get finished with their meetings, and they come to a Bible study. And there we are, just, you know, high-five Gus, and there's Blake, and it's all the guys there. Why? It's not because of who I am. It's because of who I am with. That's it. And, my, and, my, and JP is like, that's so cool that we get to do this. I'm like, bro, you don't get to do jack. You are just with me, and I am with him. That's how this works. You're still, you're layers away. Right? 
The coolest one I've ever been a part of, I've told you this before, is there's a covenant member of the church here, and he was a, uh, he was a, a captain of one of the ships at Mayport. So he calls me one day and says, do you want to have lunch? Yeah. And so uh, he'd meet me at the base. And so I'm thinking we're going to get like a hot dog from a truck or something, right? And you pull up to the security, and you, the moment I say I'm with Captain Nygaard, they're like, everything changes. Follow him, and I get escorted to the ship. And he comes off the ship and he meets me. And then we are about to step onto the ship. And as we do, it is a really big deal. Before my foot hits the little step, they start ringing a bell. Ding, 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 ding. And then this intercom. I couldn't understand what they say. The peanuts teacher now works at Mayport. They call out people getting on the boats, okay? And everybody stops in the whole boat. Everybody stops. And boom, man, they salute. And, you know, it's pretty. they're not saluting me. But I'm with the guy. So I'm like, man, appreciate you. Thank you all. High five. No. Okay. You know, I'm like talking to them. Every room we go into, boom, everybody. It is cool, man. I can get used to that real quick, okay? And he let me go to the war room. And I just sit down in this thing. It's just a bunch of video screens and stuff. And I'm in this huge chair, like in the movies. And I flip this thing. He's like, don't touch that. <laughs> yeah, we were almost on the news, all right? I mean, so I, I have access to places that I could never go on my own. It takes me all the way up to the captain's quarters. And we sit there on the top of the boat. And the guy brings me the most delicious BLT I've ever had in my life. Now, I don't have access to that except because of who I'm with. In fact, years ago, I told... That, that story, and a guy comes up to me and says, I'm in the Navy, I'm on that ship, I've never been to the captain's quarters. And I was like, bro, it ain't what you know. It, it, what matters is who you are with. And so, to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that changes everything. Verse 14, and here's how that is made available. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Go to verse 16. For from his fullness we have received. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who is at the father's side. He has made him known. This is Emmanuel. You see, I think when people think about God, the, the overwhelming majority of Americans uh, believe in some kind of God. Atheism is a tiny, tiny little percentage of people. And in fact, the largest percentage of atheists, it's, it's uh, uh, a bunch of rich white men. That's primarily their target audience. The large majority of people in America believe to believe in God. And most people, if you ask them about God, we don't, have a, we don't have a real hard time thinking about God being big and bigger than us, right? Almighty, omnipotent kind of God. The hard thing for a lot of us to understand is how in the world is the almighty, immutable, omnipotent God of the universe that spoke everything into existence, that hung the stars in the sky and still knows every one of them by name, how in the world can that big God be knowable to people like us, just good for nothing, me. You see, the miracle of, of Christmas is not even necessarily the bigness of God, but the, the smallness, that he became small enough for us to know, that he became vulnerable enough to be a baby in a manger, that he became killable so that we could know him. Because how could we relate to the omnipotent creator of the universe 
It reminds me of um, 100 years ago when I was in college. Uh, I went to VCU in downtown Richmond. I lived in the fan district. And, uh, and, and I just lived on this like really, 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 really terrible street because it was all I could afford, but whatever, it was awesome. And so um, next to my apartment, there was just an empty lot, a vacant lot, and it was just covered in cement. And the reason is because that apartment building had been condemned and they tore it down. I should have seen the writing on the wall for the prophecy that was about to happen to mine, but I didn't pick up on that. And so <clears throat> I would have to walk through that little concrete lot every day to get to class. And there was this little neighbor kid that lived under me and, uh, and he was psycho. He was totally psycho. And he, he had this big wheel. Remember the big wheel? Like one big wheel in the front, two little wheels in the back, and that drift bar so you could get going and, you know, he could slide around. And so what psycho neighbor kid did on his big wheel is in this lot, there would be these carpenter ants, like those really big ants. And he would get at the back of the lot, and when he would see an ant come out, he would take off and then and slide right over, right? Brutal little sadistic child, all right? And so... Then what would happen is after he ran over an ant or two, uh, they would all, you know, hunker down and be like, we got to wait till nighttime when Psycho Boy has to go to bed. And so then he would go to his house and he would get jelly. And he would take jelly and he would wipe it on the concrete, all right? Can you believe people would bait an animal so that they could kill it? That is unbelievable, is it not? I don't know. <laughs> I jest. All right. My Bible says rise up, kill, and eat. All right, so anyway... So then the ants would smell the jelly and they would come and like every carpenter ant from three states would all join them there. And there were just, I mean, thousands of these ants and he would just ride around on his big wheel and just, and little ant parts would go everywhere, okay? Now, if, if I had some sort of heart for ants, what in the world could I do to help them, you know? If I were to stand out amongst them on the concrete slab and say, hear ye, hear ye, all ants, I bring good tidings and great news. Run away from Psycho Boy. Resist the temptation of the sweetness of the jelly. I know it tastes good for a little while, but certainly you will be squished to death by the big wheel. Do you know what the ants would say? They would look at me and go, look at the size of that shoe. That would be it. Because in my bigness compared to them, there would be a big old communication gap. The only way I think that I could lead the ants and communicate with the ants is I would have to become an ant. Be born among them, live among them, work among them, live the perfect, righteous ant life, and then at just the right time, say, after I had gained their trust, say, follow me to the promised land across the street. Because psycho boy's mama won't let him cross the street. Come on, okay? That is Emmanuel. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the big, big, almighty God became small enough for us to know him. And he dwelt among us. That word dwelt is really important. Dwelt. Um, Eugene Peterson, he's a, a theologian and, and Bible scholar. He wrote a version of the Bible. It's not necessarily a translation called the message. Maybe some of you have read it or haven't. And so what we study, we use the ESV here because it is a word-for-word -word translation. The message is a legitimate um, kind of support and supplement to the Bible. Eugene Peterson, this New Testament theologian, he, he took the concepts of the Bible and just put it in his own modern-day words to help us understand. So the way he interprets John 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us is this. And the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. That God Almighty moved into our neighborhood. Which, by the way, 
You need to know this here at 1122, that our theology drives our ecclesiology. In other words, the way we do church is rooted in the character and nature of who God is. So part of the reason, Bay Meadows, we moved into your neighborhood, is because the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And the reason we're moving into the Mandarin neighborhood is because, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And what I need you praying about like crazy is on January the 8th, we will go from two to three locations. We, and we essentially want to relaunch every one of our campuses. This campus, our Bay Meadows campus, and our Mandarin campus. And I need every single one of us praying like crazy, which part of the neighborhood is God calling us to be in. And basically, we would really like for you to attend the location that is closest to your neighborhood so that you could best serve and love your neighbors. And so be praying about like that like crazy, and we open up everything on January the 8th. And the reason is because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and moved into the neighborhood. Now, that word dwelt, it's really important. Um, John could have used, I don't know, a half a dozen words that mean like to live next to, to, to abide, to live close, whatever. But he uses this word that in Greek, it literally is the word tabernacled. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, now here's what's crazy about the word tabernacle. Um, in the first century, if you were to read this as a first century Jew, and you heard this statement, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, you would lose your mind. You'd be like, he did what? And I can tell by your blank stares that you don't quite understand the depth and the power of the word tabernacle. So that's what I'm here to do, help you understand this. Okay, so if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God has picked Moses to be his leader, to lead his people out of Egypt, to lead them into the promised land. And Moses had this, thing, this tent of meeting that he would meet with God in. And the Bible says that God would speak to Moses as if to a friend. And so when you get to, when you get to Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says these words to God. He says, God, please show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And then God, I'll, I'll kind of ad lib here. God essentially says, bro, you can't handle my glory. If you were to see my glory, it would kill you. Because if I were to unleash the glory of an almighty, righteous king of kings for you little wretched, black-hearted sinner, you would just, you'd burn up. There'd be like a little crispy Moses, and then who would lead the people? So you can't, you can't see the glory of God. It'd be like taking a, trying to get a marshmallow to the sun. It's just going to be gone way before it ever got there. And so God says, but I tell you what I will do. Because what Moses was asking, he even says, if your glory's not going to go to the promised land, I don't want to go because I just want to be where you are. God says, all right, so here's what we'll do. You can read all about it in, in uh, Exodus chapter 33. God says, how about this, Moses? I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I want you to hide behind this rock. And then I'm going to use my hand, and I'm going to hide your face, and then I'm just going to walk by. And once I get all the way by, I'm going to remove my hand from your eyes, and I'm just going to let you see kind of the after effects of my glory. You see, it's like God puts it in turbo and and then Moses sees kind of the after effects of the glory of God. And it's so overwhelming to Moses that his face is glowing. So when he gets down from the rock and he goes to see the people, they're like, bro, what happened to your face? And he's like, I saw the after effects of the glory of God. And then after that, so that's, that's Exodus 33. By the time you get to Exodus 35, they're building a tabernacle. Because in Exodus 25, God says, I want the glory, I want my glory, the glory of God to dwell amongst the people of God. Therefore, why don't you build me a tabernacle? Here, here's the way uh, God says it. 
in Exodus 25, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so that you shall make it. And so for eight chapters, they do nothing. Moses gets a glimpse of the glory of God and then boom, and two chapters later, man, they take up an offering and they build this tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this huge tent and it was kind of a, it was a room inside of a room inside of a wall inside of a wall. That's what it was, okay? It was huge. And it was, it was basically, this tabernacle was to show the glory of God to the people of Israel. And there were a bunch of steps that you kind of had to go through to get to the very, it wasn't geographically the middle, but the Holy of Holies was like the, the epicenter of the glory of God. And so from the outside, from the outer courts, there were two things there. Um, there was this altar of sacrifice, and it was where people would make sacrifices. They'd like cut up a goat and put it up there. They would take something uh, that, that meant a lot to them, and to show their devotion to God, they would give a first fruit offering to God. And then also there was this basin for washing, where you would go in and you would wash your hands up to your elbows to be ceremonially clean. And then you could go in kind of to the first layer. And that court was the court of the Gentiles and the Jewish women. But you couldn't go any further. To go past that, you had to be a ceremonially clean Jewish man. Sorry, ladies, I didn't make the rules. That's just how it was. It was kind of a bummer, though, right? Because you were with your good-for-nothing husband who was a jerk all week, but he'd wash his hand and cut the head off a cat, and then, boom, he can go in to the temple, all right? And so that's how it was. But once you washed your hands and you, and you had the altar of sacrifice, then you could go into the inner court. And in there, there was the, this table for bread. And the table of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was to remind people of the Passover, remind people of the Passover. And opposite of that in the room was the golden lampstand, and it looked kind of like a tree, and the light was to never go out because the light of God was gonna shine forever and ever. And it was to remind the people of the tree of life back in the garden. And then... Um, those two were facing each other, and on, the, on another wall, there was the altar of incense, and a part of the way that you would, that you would uh, pray or worship is you would light the incense, and it was a picture of your prayers. So as the incense like floated up into heaven, that was supposed to be like your prayers, making it up to heaven. And then inside of that room, that room's called the holy place, inside of that room is this room called the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the presence and the power and the glory of God. And it was separated. Nobody could go in there. One guy, once a year. You couldn't go in there. It was separated. This huge, thick curtain separated the presence of God from the people of God. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. It just means a box with the law of God in it. The Ten Commandments were in this box. That thing was called the, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that was the mercy seat of God. It was these two angels with their wings stretched out like this, and it looked like a seat. And so that was the throne of God, and that is the place where God dwelt and his glory was. And one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, one man, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies. And it was super dangerous. See, first thing he would do is gather all of Israel together, and everyone would confess their sins out loud. So you didn't want to be near somebody you knew, right? And so uh, you, you, they'd say their sins out loud, and the priest would receive their sins, and he would transfer the confessed sins of the people from their mouths to the head of this goat. He'd take the goat to the edge of town and set it loose and cast their sins as far as the east is from the west, and that was called the scapegoat. And then he would take this other lamb or this other goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would shed the blood of this perfect, spotless lamb. And he would take the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God over the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is what a big deal this is. If he screwed up, if he didn't do something right, 
If he wasn't ceremonially clean, if he was unrighteous, if he was unholy, in the presence of a perfect and holy God, he would be killed immediately. He would drop dead in that moment. And so when these guys, when the high priest would go in, they would tie a rope around his waist with bells on it. And so if you were like, you know, vice president of high priest, you know, you were like the JV high priest, you would wait outside the curtain kind of listening, and if you heard the bell stop, then that brother wasn't doing it right. And so you would drag that dead priest out, and then congratulations, you just got promoted. And then you would lock and load, and it was your turn, all right? Imagine that. Oh, here we go. Okay, and so he would, he would kill the lamb, the perfect spotless lamb, sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat, and the top of the mercy seat in Hebrew was called the kapareth, kapareth. It means propitiation. And one time a year, the high priest would shed the blood of a lamb to, co- to cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one year. They do it over and over and over again. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, what Jesus came to do is he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus came to fulfill all of those steps so that you get to the glory of God in and of himself that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace upon grace upon grace. And so because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have to have the tabernacle because Jesus tabernacled among us. So we don't have to have an altar of sacrifice because Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And we don't have to have a basin for washing because Titus 3, 4, and 6 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And we don't have outer courts and inner courts. The reason why is because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus busted up the seating chart. And there is no table for the bread of the presence because because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And there's no need for a golden lampstand because Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And there's no altar of incense because we don't float our prayers up on a piece of smoke. We, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who, who art in heaven. In other words, yes, he's the almighty king of kings. He just happens to be your dad, so you can talk to him like a good, good father. And there's no longer a need for the holy of holies because when Jesus was on the cross and he says, it is finished, uh, an earthquake hits Jerusalem, cracks right down the center of the temple, and that curtain that separated the people of God from the presence of God was torn from the very top to the very bottom. And now his presence isn't just reserved for the high priest, but the great high priest Jesus tore that curtain down, and now you and I can, be, can enter into the presence, the throne room of God. And we don't have to sprinkle the blood of a lamb on the Ark of the Covenant to cover over sin every single year, because in John 1.29... 
It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Not another Lamb of God that's going to cover over the sin of the Jewish people for a year, but the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the entire world. And that mercy seat, which means propitiation in Hebrew, 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. If you're new to Bible study, propitiation just means a payment that satisfies. And the word became flesh and tabernacled, accomplished all of that, tabernacled among us so that we could see the glory of God. And again, we go to church in Walmart or a sports bar, or, you know, we have one like actual church now. So we still don't get it. Imagine for a second, I mean, just try hard. Imagine you're a first century Gentile, okay? And you've been hanging around Jerusalem, and this whole Yahweh worship has got something to it. Like, you believe. You're like, I didn't grow up that way, but I've been watching the way you treat each other and, and, and the way you worship God. And I believe, I think y'all are right. I think there is one true God, and I want to be a part of this whole deal. And so imagine you take a little vacation one day, and you go to Jerusalem because you want to see the temple. You want to see the tabernacle. You want to see the closest to the presence and the glory of God that you could get to. And you, 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 have, you already understand, man, I can't go in there, okay? I'm not a high priest. I'm not even Jewish. I can't get in there, but I could at least maybe look at it from way back here. And imagine you showed up one day, and I mean, this is like the biggest thing you've ever seen, the thing you desired more than anything else is to be close to this. And those people, you couldn't be Jewish, but you could, you could be what they would call a God-fearer or a prophetite, a Gentile person that believed that God is the one true God. And imagine if you're just standing in the outer course, just kind of admiring, and a guy comes up and says, hey, you want to go in? You'd be like, what, are you sure? I don't, I, don't think, I don't think I can just go in. He's like, yeah, yeah, come with me. Come with me. I can get you in. And so you walk by, and, and the first thing you see is that altar, that sacrificial altar, and you're like, oh, dang it, I didn't bring a goat or a dove or anything. And the guide is like, man, don't worry about it. I got it covered. And then you walk by the basin, and you're like, oh, I can wash my hands. I can do this. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I got it covered. And you're like, are you sure? My mama has told me my whole life to wash my hands. And I'm pretty sure it's in Leviticus. And he's like, no, nah, seriously, don't worry about it. I got it covered. And then you go from the outer court and you're about to go into the inner court. And you're like, whoa, I don't think I can go in there. I'm not Jewish. And then the guide says, nah, man, don't, don't worry about it. It's been taken care of. And you're like, are you sure? Because I think that requires surgery. And I think I would know. <laughs> nah, man, don't worry about it. We got this covered, okay? I got it covered. And then you were to walk in, and straight by, man, you, you see the table with the bread, and you see the light, and you see the, the incense, and you're, you cannot believe it. You're in the holy place. And then you walk up, and your guide, the one that has taken you through all of these things, I mean, you are freaking out. This is way bigger, way bigger than being with the captain of a ship, and this is, this is way bigger than being on the other side of the red ropes or even the, the queen's palace. You were in the holy place, and you see the curtain, and you know on the other side of the curtain is the holy of holies, and, and, the, and your God goes back, and he puts his hand on it, and you know he's about to open it up, and you're like, whoa, no, 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 no. Have you not seen the last scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark? If we look on this thing, our eyeballs are going to melt out of our face. Don't do it. The glory of God will burn us up. And your God's like, no, man, don't worry about it. I got this covered. You want to see the glory of God? And he peels back the curtain and seating on the, sitting on the mercy seat, you look, and it's your God. And you're like, you, uh, eh. You would fall on your face, and you would go, oh, my goodness, the word 
became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Moses brought us the law, but Jesus brings us grace upon grace upon grace. And you would say, what manner of love is this? And your God would say, oh, no, see, you see, through me, you are a child of God. That's what Emmanuel is. That God came after us. You see, the point is this. The point is, man-made religion is our attempt to make our way to God up there somewhere through our own efforts. Well, let's just be honest. The, the prevailing mindset these days is this. Like God, we all worship the same God. We just kind of have our different ways of getting to it. I've had, I've had people of other religions say to me this. Listen, it's pretty much the same God. Think about God as like at the top of the mountain. And the rest of us are all kind of down here. And you've got your path, and I've got my path, and she has her path. And shouldn't we just tolerate and, and, and respect everybody's paths? And I, just to be clear, I say, okay, so what you're saying is we've got our own way to kind of get up to the top of the mountain. And, 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 and you're going to obey the law, and you're going to obey the Ten Commandments, and you're going to align your chakra, and you're going to uh, meditate to nirvana, and, and these things. Right, 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 okay. All right. Well, every man-made religion has this in common. Every man-made religion, which is all of them. Every man-made religion is our attempt to make our way to a God up there somewhere through our own efforts. The gospel? The gospel is that God came down to rescue us. Fundamentally different. It's not based on how good you are. It's based on who God is. And he came down off the top of the mountain. See, the reality is every one of those paths has this incredible chasm in it that you cannot cross on your own. And so the gospel is, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel is that God came off the top of the mountain to come on a rescue mission for you and me. Every man-made religion, even versions, like, like lots of churches even can kind of teach that it's our attempt at righteousness that earns favor with God. That is not the gospel. Good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Alive people in Christ go to heaven. The message of the gospel is not that God's trying to make bad people better. Because if, if good people went to heaven, the legitimate question is, how good? How good? I mean, is this like graduate level, you know, you got to get a 90%? Or is this like middle school, you know, C's equal degrees? I mean, what is it? Like, how do you get in? And if, if, if good people go to heaven, don't you think God at least owes us like a report card? Like, to at least let you know how you are on your progress report, because if good people go to heaven, I got really bad news for some of you. Some of you don't have enough life left to make up for the 70s and 80s, okay? And so you're in trouble. Bad. Me too, all right? And so the, the gospel is not that good people go to heaven, but that people with Jesus get escorted into a place that they could never get in on their own. This is what Emmanuel is. God came after us. As I was thinking and praying and, and, and working through this, we believe we receive and are given the right to become children of God. I began to think of uh, an event in the life of our church. It's close to a lot of us on staff because it's the story of Stacy and Craig Brown. Stacy's our CFO. And um, they've adopted two children, one from Korea and one from China. And we, as a staff and as People close to their family have prayed for them and walked with them through this. And so um, think about it. Think, er, this is true of every parent, but especially those parents that adopt children. 
parents that are chosen to choose a child. You realize when there's an adoption, there's no tryout, right? It's not like they send a letter to their, the boy that would be their son in China and say, all right, if you can accomplish these three things, then maybe you can come to live with us in Jacksonville. One, potty training, please. Two, sleep, all right? And three, you better get a jet plane or a boat or something and make your way over. No, no, no. It's, in fact, it's the exact opposite of that, is it not? That the parents go through great expense, great expense, great self-sacrifice to go and get what God has said is theirs. So I asked Stacy to share her story, and so she wrote it out for me. I just want you to hear it from her words. And I want you to think about this, Emmanuel, God with us, that God came off the mountain to come and rescue us. Here's Stacy's words. There these children are by the thousands, lying in the cold, alone and afraid, abandoned to an uncertain future through no fault of their own, but through the fault of a society whose desire for bodily perfection, for pure bloodlines, and saving face are more important than caring for human life. Their future is anything but certain. Their present circumstances are tragic as they lie there helpless. They can do nothing to change their condition. They can't find their family. They cannot summon for help. They can do nothing apart from someone reaching down to help them. They have no one to come when they call. They have no guarantee of protection. And they have been outcast and set aside by the very ones who birthed them. Alone, cold, helpless, hopeless, hungry, and afraid. And there are so many of them. They are hardly even seen except by God. He sees them, and he saw Mason. Our path to Mason was a surprise to us. We were content with one child, some days enjoying the excitement of our long-awaited family, other days struggling mightily with the emotional demands of rewiring with love the brain of a little one whose formative months were filled with rejection and abandonment. When God put in our hearts the desire to adopt again, we moved forward cautiously, fully trusting God, but also a bit confused by the detour from our plan. But we followed. We hoped to follow God back to Korea to adopt again, back to a culture and a land that we had fallen in love with in the years after Parker's adoption. It seemed the logical place to start, and start we did, with piles of paperwork in front of us. We didn't get too far before we hit the first roadblock, a big no from the country that we loved, the place where we wanted Parker to have a brother. A no because we were deemed by the culture and the government as too old to adopt again from there. A roadblock we'd soon discover meant nothing to the Lord because he had already seen Mason and was already with Mason, waiting to do for Mason what he could never do for himself, give him a family. So we began looking at other Asian adoption programs and quickly decided that China would be our choice. We dove headfirst into the paperwork for China but with part of our heart secretly broken over the no we received from Korea. We did some home studies. We paid fees. They did background checks. We did medical checkups. We paid more fees. We renewed passports. We obtained visas to get in and out of China. We prayed and answered a million questions about when will you go. We cried over the uncertainty of the whole process and did our best to prepare Parker, our son. And we waited a lot. There comes a moment in every adoption where the sadness of waiting seems to overpower God's voice and you wonder if it'll ever happen. Where you think perhaps you misheard the Lord when he told you to adopt. As if the promise that God is with us somehow ceases to be true for you. 
Then you get the call. Ours came on a sunny day in May as we were walking into Disney World with Parker. And the call came first. Congratulations, you've been matched with a little boy. And then the email with pictures came next. And we saw his face. This helpless child who could do nothing in his own right to change his situation. But by God's grace and mercy was now chosen to be a part of our family. He saved this little lost child from the uncertain future that was his as an orphan and had made him an heir. He was with Mason all along. He chose us to choose Mason, to go all the way to China to scoop him up out of the cold, dark, lonely world of abandonment and into the light of family. God saw our children, was with our children, and used us to save our children into family for his glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. I share all that just to say this. This is a picture of Emmanuel. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that we chose him, but that he chose us and did everything, paid the full price, took a trip much greater from here to China, from the glory of heaven to a little manger in Bethlehem. And that little baby grew up and hung on a cross. And when he says, it is finished, he was talking to you that the full hat, Full price has been paid for you. And if you believe when he died on the cross, it counted for you. If you believe, then you receive. And what do you receive? You receive the right to become a child of God, to see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. That this day, this day, Emmanuel could go from a theological concept to a personal reality. That not just God could be with us, but God could be with you as your heavenly father. I want to give you the opportunity right now to believe and receive that new life. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? And if today, for the very first time, you believe, maybe you can't fully describe it, but you know deep down in your soul, you know that God is calling you, that because Jesus came and died on the cross, you know you're a sinner. You know you need a savior. You believe when he died, it counted for you. And in this moment, you confess him as your Lord and Savior. Then would you just tell him? Would you just tell him? And you get invited into a place that you could never, ever, ever go on your own. You get invited into eternity, not because of who you are, but because of who he is and what he has done. If that's you, and today for the very first time, you are ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you let him know and then let us know by just lifting your hand saying, Father, here I am. I surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ here in the sanctuary at Bay Meadows. If you're ready to believe and receive, just raise your hand so that you can receive Christ. Let me pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you loved us first. And you did everything that had to be done so that we could know you. God, I thank you. It's not that we loved you. You loved us and sent your son as a propitiation, a payment that satisfies for our sin. God, we thank you that because of your love, your great love that you have lavished upon us, Lord, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, accomplished everything that had to be accomplished so that we could see the glory of God. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The way that we're gonna close the service is we're gonna celebrate Holy Communion together. So if you're sitting on the end, if you would grab the basket and pass that down, okay? 
I think there are cups in one and there are bread in one. And so pass that down. And I believe a part of the reason that Jesus told us as a church that we should often celebrate the Lord's table together is to give us this tactile reminder of Emmanuel, that God is with us. And I'd encourage you, if you are a child of God, then we would welcome you to take communion. It's not my table, it's the Lord's table. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gets up from the table and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And maybe you've heard me say this before. They were celebrating the Passover meal. And when Jesus started changing the words to the Passover, the disciples are thinking, what is he doing? He can't do that. How can he do that? He's supposed to talk about, he's supposed to talk about the Passover where Moses told the children of Israel, take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and shed its blood and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the house because tonight the angel of death is going to come through this land and whoever has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house, he's going to pass over. And so essentially, Jesus to the disciple is like, yeah, yeah, but we don't have to do that anymore because that was just pointing to this. I'm the lamb of God. It's come to take away the sin of the entire world. I'm about to end the sacrificial system by being the ultimate sacrifice. And it wasn't until the crucifixion and resurrection that the lights went off for the disciples and they began to understand. And so today, 2,000 years later, Jesus calls us to remember. And that doesn't just mean to like bring to memory something that happened in the past. The Hebrew understanding of remember is to bring into the present that which has been done for you. So Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Now, I've got to think that when he holds up the cup, the disciples are like, what is he going to do now? He's already done this thing so different. What is he going to do now? And he holds up the cup, and he says, this is my blood, and this, is a, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Covenant and testament mean the same thing in the Bible. And what he's saying is what John said in John chapter 1, that Moses brought the law, but Jesus brings grace and truth, grace upon grace. And he says, the old covenant was a covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. And tomorrow, when my blood is shed for you, then my grace is sufficient to cover over every sin that has been committed, that is being committed, and that one day will be committed. It is finished in the new covenant. And as often as you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. Later on in the New Testament, <clears throat> Paul commands the church that, that we should examine our hearts, get together, celebrate a picture of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection by celebrating communion. And then the Bible says that when they left from that place, they left singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So if I can invite you to please stand, we're going to respond. The gospel demands a response. There are three primary ways that we respond around here. One... We're going to join our voices together, and we are going to sing with a new understanding that God came off the mountain to come and take us into a place that we could never go on our own. That demands worship from us because he is worth it. And also, we worship God with our finances, that he is before all things. And so we bring our first and our best to him every single week. 
because he first loved us by giving us his best in his son, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, as we pray, we pray. And if, you've, if, you, if you're ever gonna come down and kneel at these altars and pray, today is the day. Why? Because it's not what you know, it's just who you're with. And that Jesus escorts you to the throne room of the almighty maker in heaven and earth. He just happens to be your dad. And he says, just bring it to me. Cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. So let us respond.